Hello, and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. In this week's episode, I contemplate the Oscar nominations, including that controversial Andrea Riseborough nod, talk a little bit about David Crosby's passing, and specifically recommend to you the excellent and atypical rock documentary, David Crosby, Remember My Name, play some additional clips from across his fascinating career. Finally, some recent recommendations from books, TV series, and films that I've encountered in recent week, reason, reasoned weeks. They are recent weeks, but you know, they're also reasoned weeks. Couldn't we use more of those in our life and our society here in the United States? All that and more on this week's Full Cast and Crew podcast. That's a little music from Canyon Crows, who I highly recommend you check out. Member of the Full Cast and Crew Mutual Appreciation Society on Instagram. If you're not a member, join. All you have to do is follow the Full Cast and Crew Instagram page and do something interesting yourself that speaks to me, and I'll promote it and talk about it and post about it. That's what happened with Canyon Crows. Love this uh, Vangelis meets... Well, I guess Vangelis is Blade Runner soundtrack, so it doesn't meet the Blade Runner soundtrack, but it's a contemporary sounding soundscape that draws from film and popular culture and video games and amazing sweeping synthesizer goodness. So I just always want to hype that whenever I can. This is the Full Casting Group Podcast. If you're new, I've been hosting this show since 2018, which is hard to believe. I had a co-host for the first year of the show named Chris, who moved on to bigger and better things. So there's 144 episodes to date of the podcast, which is insane. I talk about all kinds of movies, but mostly films from the sweet spot for me of the 70s and the 80s, really kind of the childhood formative time where things that we encounter, at least for me, end up getting inside your worldview and your perception. And I enjoy digging into stories about the making of films, which appeals to me for a variety of reasons, which I'll get into a little bit later as we talk about something else. I try to keep it fun, informative, funny, and easy on your ears. We don't have ads. We grow one listener at a time, and we don't have any advertising. We don't engage in any probably smart, tried and true growth strategies for podcasts either. My growth strategy is if you become a listener, well, when the time comes and someone's asking you about podcasts, you might mention full cast and crew. That's really all we ask. Just the, just that. And if you're so inclined, hit us with a five-star review on Apple. Apparently that matters. I'm supposed to ask for that according to Apple, which even that I feel awkward about. If you're new, there is an episode just for you. It's episode 125. It's called, if you're new to the podcast, start here. You see, we don't make things complicated for you. All right, let's jump into, I don't even want to say it's a topic of conversation because does it even matter anymore? But the Oscar nominations have come out. I want to quote uh, someone I'm going to talk about in a bit, Bob Lefsetz, who's a music business commentator, has a widely read newsletter 
sent out via email called the Left Sets Letter, which I recommend you sign up for, even if you're not in the music business, which I'm not. He opines from a specific position of experience about all things to do with, yes, the music business, but also popular culture, entertainment broadly, our consumption of same. I find it just uh, indispensable. Um, I'm a huge reader and listener. I'll get into that later. He had an interesting comment about the Grammys, which took place a week or so ago and is a similarly similarly troubled broadcast like the Academy Award broadcast. He said, quote, I could point out how to try and save it, meaning the broadcast, but why bother? It deserves to die. End quote. Truer words were never spoken as relates to the Oscar telecast, the last two years of which have really just been an exercise in kind of playing out the string. I was, I'm on the record. I was a big fan of, a couple years ago of the really weird Steven Soderbergh executive produced Academy Awards. I thought that got at something that really spoke to uh, me as a film goer and a fan. But then, of course, last year they reverted to just the same type of awful uselessness that seems to plague this telecast for all time. And I just don't think it's ever going to be what it was uh, ever again. And it does deserve to die. And for various reasons that I've mentioned on the podcast before, it won't because the thing that really needs to happen is it just should go away for about five to seven years. That's the life cycle where people will perhaps start to be nostalgic for something that they used to gather together and watch. Now, you do run the risk that if you stopped it for five to seven years, no one would even notice. No one would clamor for it. That might well be. However, continuing to do it every year kind of only ensures that it's eventually going to just be not worth the effort to put it forth. And it won't be worth the effort for people to participate in, which is something you're seeing in the Grammys. Left sets pointed out after the Grammys took place the other night. Is anyone even talking about it still? It hasn't even been a week. I think it took place on Sunday night. I'm recording this on Thursday. What are people talking about? Madonna's face. <laughs> and that's not really what you want as a takeaway from a show that's supposed to showcase the greatest musical talent in the world. There are no performances that everyone's sending around. Um... It just doesn't have any cultural relevance. The biggest names in music aren't there performing. So the Oscars, let's not forget, are and always have been a pretty silly convention. You know, it's uh, I read a recent book that I wanted to, to recommend um, that was about Buster Keaton, the silent film star, performative genius of the 20s and beyond. It's called Cameraman by Dana Stevens. I really recommend reading it. And in that, Dana Stevens points out that Louis B. Mayer, who is the founder of Metro, Gold, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM, had an ulterior motive in helping create the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is the organization that gives out the Oscars. He admitted in an interview decades later that... He started the awards partly as a means of controlling the actors and the people that participate 
in the movie making industry. He said, quote, the best way to handle them was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill themselves to produce what I wanted, end quote. There you have it. From that, a means to essentially control through reward, we are now in a position where this dinosaur of a telecast has not been allowed to evolve to something that might have relevance in today's televisual medium or streaming medium. And as a result, it's just going to continue to suffocate itself. And in some years, it suffocates itself through kind of insufferable self-seriousness. That's what it most often suffers from, this idea that movies can change the world. Now, I also recently posted on Instagram and featured in my episode about Ed Wood, uh, a great Roger Ebert quote that my guest Brad Kane brought to my attention, and it's Roger Ebert on empathy. It's on the Instagram uh, page for Full Casting Crew. It's pinned to my reels if you want to check it out. It's a great quote, and he's right that films at their best can tell us something about people who aren't like ourselves. So in that sense, yes, films can do something important, but I kind of think it's best to let the films do that work and not really have people in ridiculous outfits pontificating to themselves about why that is. It's kind of like maybe acting. Didn't someone say acting is kind of like sex? Um, you should do it, not talk about it. That's kind of something that the Oscars suffers from. However, when the awards came out, I mean, rather the nominations, I thought, well, you know, they kind of, like I say, they got it right. Cause I, I am again, I'm on the record saying that the whole concept of giving awards to me is silly. However, when you look at what was nominated, I think they did a pretty good job this year of recognizing, quote unquote, the right films, not always the right performances. Some of the nominations are a little kooky, uh, namely. Didn't Avatar get a best picture nomination? <laughs> um, however, the other best picture nominees, which in case you're not familiar, are All Quiet on the Western Front which is a German-made film remake of the 1933 classic, I want to say. Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. That's a pretty interesting batch of Best Picture nominees. Now, of these, the ones I haven't yet seen are Women Talking, uh... Elvis and the Banshees of Inna Sharon. I am going to see them. Now I'm going to see, I'll admit, I'm going to see Elvis a bit with gritted teeth. I don't think I'm interested in it. However, I got to keep an open mind. So I, I will see it as a completist. And I haven't seen women talking, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Of the ones I did see, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, Everything Everywhere, Fableman's Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, of those, I would say the three best films among them would be The Fablemans, number one for me, Top Gun Maverick, number two, Triangle of Sadness, number three, for different reasons. The Fablemans is the most straightforward of those, in a sense. 
you know, Top Gun Maverick, it's, it's not a, I don't want to say it's not a serious picture, but it doesn't, it, it's the one that maybe has the least in common with the most of these other films, you know, which are to one degree or another about the medium of cinema and using it to either put forth important messages in the case of All Quiet in the Western Front or Everything Everywhere, Triangle of Sadness, Women Talking, presumably, Tar, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's Top Gun Maverick. Is it going to win Best Picture? Probably not. It's a great picture. It's a great film-going experience. It's a great theatrical experience. If it's re-released in the theaters, you should go see it if you haven't. It's just full movie star in a way you don't get anymore. But for me, the three best films that I saw among these uh, were The Fablemans. Actually, you know what? I'm going to have to add more to this, aren't I? It's not going to cover it. I think I said three. I think I said originally Fablemans, Top Gun, Triangle. But actually, it's going to be Fablemans, Everything Everywhere, Top Gun, Triangle. Because Triangle of Sadness is such a brilliantly hilarious, sharp satire of our culture that it, um, while not truly great in the way that I think The Fablemans is a truly great film made by a master filmmaker at the absolute peak and pinnacle of his powers in terms of Spielberg, Triangle of Sadness is one of the funniest, most biting films you'll see. Um, but it does have some parts that tip over a bit into kind of slapstick or caricature. Um, I don't think Woody Harrelson is great as the captain, but the, the, the rest of the cast is really something. And I highly recommend you go check out Triangle of Sadness. Tar, which I recently saw, I really was expecting to love. And actually, I had the weirdest reaction to watching Tar. I don't know if you've seen it. For roughly three quarters of the film, I was completely with it. Because the things that were off-putting about Kate Blanchett's performance seemed to be working in concert with the whole construct of this film that wasn't really going to reveal its cards to you as it went along, if that makes any sense. So while there were things about her performance that were sort of off-putting, maybe imperious or even ticky in an in actor sense, you also had the sense that that was all of a part of, of a concept and an idea that d director and writer Todd Field had for this film and this character. The problem for me was that at the end, when you kind of want this big payoff, you want the minutia of this canceled life that you've just followed all of the pre-cancellation uh, for, when the character of Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, is canceled due to some... Uh, suspect personal power dynamic sexual relationships gone wrong and her own obliviousness to these things happening right in front of her when all of you watching are going to go, geez, just give the other girl the job and your, your, your whole construct of, of cards remains in place. So for two thirds of the film, it's really effective. But when the cancellation happens, it's like it feels like two minutes of Here's what life turned into and kind of an unbelievable two minutes as well. So ultimately kind of disappointing, I have to say. And I thought Kate Blanchett's performance, while impressive, is 
essentially lacking something because of the whole construct of the way the movie is is designed and, and what it's about. There's a there's a reticence emotionally inherent in the character which works and is truthful, yet it's not what I really respond to in terms of, of great acting performances in that way. And I got more of that out of The Fablemans from a whole variety of people. So I think The Fablemans is, is the most complete film of the year of these films. Um, but Everything Everywhere All at Once is easily the most fun I had in a movie theater outside Top Gun Maverick. In terms of the joy of going to a movie, in a movie theater, those two films, Top Gun Maverick and Everything Everywhere All at Once, hands down two of the film going experiences of my life, I will say. You know, I've never seen anything like Everything Everywhere All at Once. And to see it with a crowd, uh, as much of a crowd as we have in post COVID theater going, just like seeing Top Gun Maverick with a crowd, is an incredible experience because the movie is so funny and bawdy and pulls no punches and is so impressively so many things, uh, including emotional and touching and moving so many great performances as well. Uh, so seeing that in a theater is really what movie going should be all about. Contrast that with avatar way of the water. Oh, completely devoid of any emotional engagement, you know, Technologically, I suppose it's impressive, but to what end? Uh, it really didn't speak to me at all. It's easily an hour and a half too long. Usually, we speak of movies like, "Yeah, it could have could have trimmed thirty minutes." No, you could have turned it. You could have trimmed an hour out of this thing easily, easily. And I don't even think it would necessarily be any better. Uh, but I guess it's made you know over a billion dollars and counting. So, uh, yeah, can't recommend that. All Quiet on the Western Front is good, but not great, ultimately. It's impressively made. It's beautifully shot. It's, um, it's worth seeing, for sure. But, again, a little chilly in a certain way. Not sure why. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing Banish uh, Banshees and looking forward to seeing... Uh, women talking because I think those look super interesting and uh, I've read a lot about them. So curious to, to see them. I did want to talk a little bit about something I just posted about, which is the nominations for an actress in a leading role. And again, I've talked many times before. I think it's silly to continue to divide acting performances by uh, actor, actress, male, female roles. I think that's so passe, like best actor in a leading role, best actor in a supporting role should include all the, all the nominees of any sex. Um, I'm not sure why we still do that. That's one of the things that I think is a bit archaic about the Academy Awards. And I'm not talking about, you know, doing away or making some sort of political statement about, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling per se, but I'm just saying that to use the term actress, to use the term, I mean, they're actors and I'm not sure why that continues to be the way it is. However, since that's what they do, let's talk about the nominees for actress in a leading role. We have Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna de Armas for Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe, much derided Marilyn Monroe pick, Andrea Riseborough for Two Leslie, 
easily the most controversial nomination in recent years, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, in the face of it, I think you can eliminate Anna Diarmas and Andrea Riseborough right away for two different reasons. One, you know, Marilyn, Blonde, I mean, it's, it's not a film that a lot of people saw and the people that did, it's just, it was eviscerated. And the nomination, I think, surprised people. Um, but I don't think that performance resonates in a way that some of these others do. The Andrea Riseborough nomination is really funny to me. And if you're not familiar with this supposed controversy, what happened was this movie to Leslie came out four months ago and no one heard of it. No one saw it. Uh, I think it made something funny, like $26,000 over four months. Super tiny movie. Uh, Andrea Riseborough, great actor. Um, I highly recommend the Amazon Prime series, Zero, 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 which is an international drug smuggling espionage drama. Not espionage. It's an international drug smuggling uh, just masterpiece of filmmaking. And she's phenomenal in it. Incredible. It's kind of the first time I really noticed her. I haven't seen to Leslie. Um, it's the sort of movie that kind of irritates me unfairly before I even experience it because I generally have a low tolerance, I think, for this kind of, you know, here's a beautiful actor, quote unquote, slumming it as a working class person. And they're going to fall apart. Kind of like my recording is right now due to some fire emergency down the street. Every time I record, there's like a fire truck that goes up. I don't know what happens. Anyway, I don't like the concept in general, even though I could, even though you could probably point out numerous times that I have liked this type of performance, but in general, it sort of bugs me for some reason when I get this very sort of showy feeling like, oh, she's going to fall apart spectacularly. She's she won the lottery as Leslie, and then she blew all the money. She's hanging out in bars and burning it to the ground, pissing off her friends and family, left with nothing. Okay. I just don't get what the stakes are there compared to some of these other films and performances. So I was already kind of like, like everyone when it came out, was sort of like, wait, what? What was that movie? I didn't even hear that. I didn't even hear about that movie. Then it came out shortly thereafter that what had happened was that the filmmakers who are two pretty well-connected people in Hollywood had coordinated a movement amongst a group of their friends who just happened to include people like, I think, Jennifer Aniston or Gwyneth Paltrow, like the Cool Kids Club. And they had screenings of the film in their homes in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And they invited other important, famous people to appreciate the film. And they lobbied them to vote for Andrea Riseborough for uh, Best Actress in a Leading Role nomination. Now, all of this is ostensibly well within their rights as filmmakers. And also, if you don't think that massive lobbying campaigns go on to get people nominations, well, you're wrong. I mean, it does happen. And occasionally people get their hands slapped. Um, I'm not aware of any nominations being withdrawn, but basically... It was so out of left field that people asked, how did this happen? And then once they started digging into it, I guess it was revealed that these 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 cool kid actors had lobbied their friends. And basically the nominations come from uh, 
the portion of the Academy that are your peers. So I guess the actors nominate uh, the acting awards. And I guess in the Academy, there's something, there's not that many of them. There's like 1400 people that vote. And so I think you need to only get like 239 or 240 votes in order to get a nomination. And that's what they effectively did. And that sort of left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because it's a little nakedly transparent. I think people prefer, clearly Hollywood prefers, that all of its unseemly machinations take place and remain behind closed doors. So that was a pretty hilarious um, a pretty hilarious moment. I, I wanted to play a little bit. There's a great skit that Saturday Night Live did this past weekend called The Big Hollywood Quiz. And it's basically about how none of us have heard of anything that's the most popular thing on Netflix, which is something I've also spoken about. Here's a little bit of Bowen Yang, and his panel is made up of Pedro uh, Pascal, who I think was the host, and Ego Nuwodim and Chloe Feynman play the uh, contestants on this Hollywood uh, quiz show where they get all the classic stuff right, and then when it comes to things in the 2020s, You'll see what happens. Now let's go over to the 2020s. This breakout hit is the current number one show on Netflix. It's Ginny and... No one? It's the most watched show on the most watched streaming service in the world. No? Ginny and... Juice? No. It was Ginny and Georgia. Ginny and Georgia season two. Is that from Europe? No, it's totally American. Okay, next and question. Just last week, Andrea Riseborough was nominated for an Oscar for her role in which movie? Okay, I just want to stop there. Listen to the people in the audience laughing just at the setup, which is brilliant to me. Like, if this is your movie, now I understand that we're in, we're three minutes into a six minute sketch. So they understand it's a setup at this point because there's been one additional setup, which we just heard. There was a joke there that no one heard of Ginny and whatever it's called. So this is the second setup. And I know that in comedy, the audience is now primed to understand that it's a setup and maybe they start laughing a little early. But I think you can hear that people know it's already funny, which is um, you can't say the campaign backfired because they did get attention for the film and it, they did get an Oscar nomination. But it became, or is becoming, or is a punchline. Here's a little bit more of this. Anyone? Andrea Riseborough. They say it was the best performance of her career. Career? Mm, it was to Leslie, that's right. To Leslie, it's great. You should really see it because so far, it's made $27,300. <laughs> okay, that's not a lot for opening weekend. It's been out for four months. Can I make a request, Jack? Can we do a question with some big movie stars, people we would all know? Sure, like who? I don't know, Nicole Kidman. Absolutely, here's one. This past year, Nicole Kidman starred in this darkly feminist drama on Apple TV. Wednesday? <laughs> no. Anyone? Nobody? It was Roar. That's right, Roar. No. Yes. <laughs> it's a great sketch. Uh, Saturday Night Live doesn't really hit it out of the park too often these days, but I think they really nailed uh, 
the nailed the what nailed the nail on the head. Great analogy, Jace. But um, these are the jokes that are being made. So another film that I recently watched. This is the film she said. It's it's not nominated at all, which is crazy. Which is a dramatization of the real life story of the two New York Times reporters who investigated, reported, and released the story about women accusing noted Miramax film executive and Uber Hollywood power broker Harvey Weinstein, uh, women accusing him of a variety of sexual improprieties going back decades. And I'm not sure why the film kind of came and went. I mean, I guess I am kind of sure, but that's what I want to talk a bit about. But I was surprised when I finally saw it. Now, I will admit, maybe it's because we're still in this moment where there's a reckoning going on with powerful beha- powerful people behaving poorly and abusing this power that there's a lot of conversation that we didn't really used to have prior to the, to the Weinstein story. These concepts of abuse of power, of powerful men being aware of and capitalizing on the reality that people will want to have either encounters with them transactionally or appear in their orbit as a result of their position and are then preyed upon. All of these types of behaviors, which were discussed widely with Weinstein, um, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Army Hammer, who just recently had a big Mia Culpa article talking for the first time about the accusations against him and kind of he, he gave um, what I would call the uh, post sobriety interview, which James Franco did one of after he was accused of some. Uh, impropriety with, I believe, some students at an acting school that he founded in Los Angeles. Um, He went away, got some help, came out and kind of gave a very, I thought, nuanced um, explanation and ownership of uh, what he had done and why and and what it had caused to happen in his life. But of course, it got reduced and ripped apart on, on Twitter because Uh, People either didn't bother to listen to the whole thing or just were not in the mood to hear any apologies or any second chances or anyone who has um, who has abused their position in some way coming out and saying, hey, I did that. I learned from it. It's now some months or years later, and I'd like to share my story in the hopes that people will understand that you can get help or do whatever it is that they were trying to do with that. Now, Army Hammer just did that as well, I think, this week. And it was wasn't quite as in-depth as the James Franco because it was a shorter interview. Uh, But he did own the fact that he had learned that he was not aware of the force field of his celebrity and his persona and that he traded upon that and that he, uh, while he certainly believed that these encounters were all Uh, consensual that he wasn't aware of the power dynamic as much as he now is and all this kind of thing. So, you know, this is a moment we're living in. I guess I can understand a film. Maybe people sort of don't feel like they want to go see a movie like that right away for, for a variety of reasons. 
I certainly didn't really remember the film coming out with any great fanfare. I love a newspaper movie, and that's why I eventually uh, got to it, because I love good newspaper movies. This is a very good newspaper movie. And as I watched it, I thought in an increasing manner over the course of the running time, I thought, this is insane that some of these performances were not nominated for Academy Awards for either leading actress um, or supporting actress. Again, since we're doing that, um, there are a number of performances in this film that are certainly worthy of nomination, starting with Carrie Mulligan, who I guess would be the lead character, although Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan are very much the two co-leads. However, I think we spend a little more time with um, Carrie Mulligan's character's real life struggles as relates to postpartum depression. Um, but man, her and Zoe Kazan are great in this film. Like, that's clearly two of the best leading female performances of the year. Not a nomination. And then within the film, you have uh, people like Samantha Morton, Jennifer Ely, um, Patricia Clarkson. I mean, just giving incredible performances. Um as women who are sharing portions of what happened to them with these reporters. And I guess you could say, okay, Samantha Morton really has one main scene. Jennifer Ely has a couple main scenes. So, you know, is that enough to garner a nomination? Well, we're giving one to Judd Hirsch for really two scenes in The Fablemans, and I think that's well-deserved. So Samantha Morton and Jennifer Ely certainly deserve consideration for Best Supporting Actress. And Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan absolutely deserved uh, consideration for Best Actress. And the screenplay um, is by a woman, Rebecca Lankowitz. The director is a woman. The cinematographer is a woman. And nothing for this film. Now, I'm not going to say it's a great film per se. I, I think that in order to be great, it would have had to have another gear of subtlety in its analysis of some of these things that I was talking about a minute ago. The power dynamic aspect is, I think, it's referenced, it's implicit because you're talking about Harvey Weinstein and his power and this era when he was just a kingmaker, could make your career, could basically guarantee you an Academy Award nomination. And there is a pretty powerful moment where playing herself, Ashley Judd talks about, as many women have in situations like this, she talks about using humor to try and deflect this situation that she found herself in with Harvey. And her version of the humor is one of the only times the film kind of addresses this almost transactional aspect of Hollywood history, which, like I said, I was just reading a book about Buster Keaton and Hollywood history in the, in the teens and the 20s. I mean, it, it's gone on forever, okay? Transactional sex, not just between men and women, but between everybody, is a part of Hollywood history. And I think that the film could have been great had it figured out how to add a little bit of that into the mix here. But Ashley Judge uh, says in the film, as herself again, 
that her joke that she used to deflect Harvey was, Harvey, when I win an Academy Award for a role in a Miramax film, I'll give you a blowjob. And that's how she exits this uncomfortable moment with him. And that's kind of the one moment that I think she's kidding, of course, and she's diffusing and she's trying to get out of the situation. But in another level, there's, I'm not going to say a truth to it for her, but there's definitely a truth to it if you read about the history of Hollywood going back to the founding of Hollywood. That's a thing that happens. People do that for roles. People do that to jumpstart careers. People have done that who have impressive long-running careers that you do or don't know about. And a lot of people do it who aren't ever going to have impressive careers. And a lot of powerful executives, mostly men, trade upon that and take advantage of that. And this film sets out and is telling a very specific story. So it's not a fault per se that it doesn't get into some of these things, some of these more I don't want to necessarily say it's a gray area, but it's the transactional element as it relates to even Harvey Weinstein is an interesting part of the story that the louder parts of the story, I think, shout down a bit. And maybe the more important parts of the story are those those moments where it's not really transactional. It's just he's a bully. And and, and that's the point. So I get that. But this movie to be completely ignored in the Academy Awards is kind of come on. I mean, who are we kidding here? Is this the Academy itself? Which again, the actors nominate the actors, the screenwriters nominate the screenwriters, the directors nominate the directors, et cetera, et cetera. So you're telling me that it's just a coincidence uh, that none of these performances by these incredible actors, actresses, I will say, were worthy of nomination or, and, and that in the moment we're living in a film written directed, photographed, acted entirely by women, isn't worthy of elevation in any of these ways that some of these other films are? What could the reason be? Hmm. Well, it could be that the film came out from a smaller studio that did not mount a effective campaign and, um, you know, sort of uh, just, they, they didn't play the game effectively. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I believe it's a plan B production, with his, which is Brad Pitt's production company. Um, they produce some of the other things that are uh, nominated here. Um, I think Tar is also a plan B, I'm not sure. But, um, so I'm not sure that's really what it is. One possible thing it could be is that the industry itself, which is still in the midst of, or the very early days of even, this reckoning with itself, doesn't really want people to potentially win awards for a film about this aspect of their own history, because to do so would be to kind of remind everyone in that room, gussied up, uh, celebrating the Academy, celebrating the work, a win for this film from anyone would necessitate a moment's reckoning, 10 minutes even. <laughs> Seven minutes in the time it takes someone to be announced, walk up there, deliver their speech in which they would no doubt directly address some of this subject matter that's going on in the film and accept their award and then get off. And then they play the music and then we go on to, you know, your next presenter. Here's Dakota Johnson. Um, however, they do it. Could it be that that moment, that potential moment was something that everyone just kind of wishes wouldn't happen right now? 
do we have to get into that again? That kind of thing. I think if you see the movie, um, you will be impressed by these performances and you will too wonder why those didn't necessarily make the cut. I certainly found it interesting. Now, Jimmy Kimmel is hosting the Oscars. Meh. That's what I say. Meh. That feels again, like something that's a little tried and, and flat to me. I'm sure the jokes will be good. The vibe will be probably less pretentious with Jimmy Kimmel hosting, but I'm not sure that's enough to save it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Of course, I'll watch. My God, I wish I could say I wasn't going to, but uh, of course I'm going to. I mean, throw me a fish hook and I will swim after it. Anyway, okay, let's talk about a couple other quick things. Some recommendations I wanted to make. It's been a few weeks since I did an episode, and in that time, David Crosby passed away. And there is an excellent documentary called David Crosby, Remember My Name, which I saw. And it's executive produced by Cameron Crowe, who is the person who does the interview with Crosby that is laced throughout this film. And man, it's a really, really good documentary film. It's directed by a guy named A.J. Eaton. And if you haven't seen it, I really recommend it because... If you listen to the pod, you'll know I'm a huge fan of rock docs in general. Oops. Sorry, playing Andy Kaufman inadvertently on my Instagram account, um, which was on the occasion of another celebrity death when Cindy Williams passed away. And she did a great turn on a forgotten Andy Kaufman TV special that I posted to Instagram. And as I was sifting through to get the name of the director on the Crosby, I inadvertently set Andy off, which is always a, a happy coincidence. So... Anyway, what's great about this documentary about Crosby is if you know anything about David Crosby, you know, he's one of the most cantankerous of our rock stars or was. He famously, um, I believe up to the end of his life, was feuding to the point of maybe non-contact with Stills, Nash and Young. And this documentary does not gild that lily. He stares at it directly and pulls no punches. And he answers for this behavior in a way that even he is kind of confused by. Here's a little of the trailer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Crosby. Do you ever wonder why you are still alive? I don't know. No idea, man. I'm 76 years old. I've had three heart attacks. I've got eight stents in my heart. I don't think people know how sick he really is. The last few years, I made four solo albums. I'm going for five. If I had ever been in before, I would was not easy. Big ego, no brains. I don't think I was a good lover. I think I was selfish. If I had ever been before, I have fallen in love with Christine. All of a sudden, she didn't come home. There's just this emptiness, this gone. You know, it's like a rip in the fabric. Give me a shot of heroin. Feels great. Only the first time. After that, you're just trying to catch it. And you never get back there. Ever. That's the house our house was written about right there. That's where Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang our first song together. He became a fugitive from the law. I got a ride to the local FBI agency. He said, you're looking for me. My name's David Crosby. This is the first interview that we ever did. My father says money, glory, fame, chicks, none of it counts. The only thing counts is whether you got any friends. What happened to your friends? All the guys that I made music with won't even talk to me. All of them. You say stuff and do stuff that's just awful. Me more than anybody else. It's just sad, and I don't quite know how to undo it, you know. 
Anyway, that's just a little of the film. I, I really recommend it. It's so different than most of these hagiographic rock documentaries in that there's an unstinting kind of honesty. I say kind of honesty because I think all of us are only capable of as much honesty as we're capable of in any given moment and certainly in any given interview. And since this is uh, seemingly one long interview that he did with Cameron Crowe in that moment, this is where he was willing to go. It really made me appreciate the skill of artful interviewing, because I think that A.J. Eaton does a great job of using as many of Crosby's answers as he does his deflections and non-answers and silences, which, of course, ends up saying as much, if sometimes not more than his actual words do. But it's a portrait of someone who has struggled with his demons throughout his life, never quite conquered them. And I think you'll you'll view it if you're a sober person, you may view it a certain way and you may think, hmm, I wonder if he could have com conquered perhaps a few more of these demons had he taken a different path in his own use of substances. We'll never know. But really, um, it explains some of the things that were going around. There's a clip that went around after he died of an interview he did with a reporter from The Hollywood Reporter who had a podcast series, and it was at the time that this film came out. And the reporter took this kind of admittedly very strange tack in the interview where he was kind of like chronologically going through David Crosby's life. And they had an hour to talk in this podcast. And Crosby's playing along for like the first 35, 40 minutes. And then he's kind of like, are, are we going to go like day by day, week by week, man? Because like we only I don't really want to get you don't know if we have time for that. And it gets very testy. And he actually ends up exploding in anger and walking off. And it's a pretty interesting listen, one, because I don't think that the of course, the podcaster put it out. The Hollywood Reporter put it out and included the embarrassing audio of Crosby exploding kind of off mic as he was ranting to his publicist that this guy's a fucking asshole and this, that and the other thing. But it's interesting that I listened to that and I thought, oh, yeah, crazy, kooky celebrity moment. But then when I watched the documentary, he talks about that one of the addictions he never conquered is anger. And he talks in the doc about what comes over him in these moments. And that's exactly what you hear in that podcast moment. And of course, the podcast doesn't explain that that's what went on. Um, but yeah, complicated guy with um, an impressive musical legacy that's better than I even think I thought it was. Um, I listened to some of his more recent stuff. This is from a 2021 album called I'm standing For on Free. the porch Like it's the edge of a cliff Beyond the grass and gravel Lies a certain abyss And I don't think I will try it today I'm facing a squall line of a thousand year storm. I don't know if I'm dying or about to be born, but I'd like to be with you today. 
Almost frighteningly intimate and and confessional. And this is an album that he released in 2021. I, I personally was completely unaware that he was making music this subtle and powerful and confessional at that late stage of his life. And there's plenty of other examples of his recent albums that are truly amazing. That voice that he had. Um and an incredible band that he put together with this long lost son that he gave up for adoption. Who's a phenomenal keyboard player. And there's, there's all this great music that you can, that you can dig into if you uh, watch the, the documentary, which I recommend. Um, I was quite moved by it. I think that song reminds me a little bit of the David Bowie song, Lazarus from black star. If you've ever listened to that, that's I think the last album of music that Bowie recorded and the song Lazarus, in a similar way that uh, I Won't Stay Long, what we just heard from David Crosby, is sort of this late-in-life, ruminative, confessional look back at the wreckage of a life perhaps poorly lived but grandly lived. In the same way Bowie's song is so haunting and moving, and you can't help but feel, of course, because it comes out posthumously, that he's thinking of his own impending death. And maybe we're reading that into it, but regardless, it's part of how we experience the music. So I really recommend checking that out. A couple books I wanted to mention, uh, Cameraman, which I talked about, uh, which is a book about Buster Keaton, who's someone, you know, I, I knew what I thought I knew about Buster Keaton, but what a fascinating history of Hollywood and of the moors of the time, the social and cultural, uh, political moors of the film business in the teens and the 20s and the 30s, the 40s, 50s and 60s. And, and Buster Keaton's remarkable career and timeless personality. He's someone that were he here now, he would still be an incredibly compelling figure. He just had this thing that's incredibly different than anyone else has ever had. And so that's a great book that I recommend. I also recommend Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, for a completely different kind of rollicking read. You know, Tarantino has such great hysterical opinions about things sometimes, but this book is really an impressive uh, capturing of some of his really interesting takes about films, predominantly of the 60s and the 70s, that I think if you're a film fan, you'll really appreciate. It includes a lot of great tidbits and behind the scenes stuff that I like. 
it, it lays out one of the best chapters, which is, I think what the book's title is taken from is a speculation about how close we came to having Brian De Palma direct taxi driver instead of Martin Scorsese and what that would have been like, um, which is a really interesting chapter. So I really highly recommend that. Another book I ended up reading and I didn't think much of reading it until I started. And I was like, God, this is such a great autobiography is Gina Davis's autobiography. It's called dying of politeness, a memoir, such a great and interesting read from someone you'll, you'll remember you've felt fondly of for nigh 30, 40 years of her career. And she writes with such a great self-deprecating sense of humor and talks about her lifelong battle to be polite to her own detriment. And, um, I found it a really, really enjoyable read. So definitely check that out. And what else have I been watching? Well, I watched a great crime series on Netflix called Black Butterflies, which I recommend. Um, I believe it's a French series. Um, really good, twisty, neo-noir, very vibey, 60s and 70s set, uh, murder mystery wrapped in a character study really quite good. And just to wrap it up, because I want to keep this quick, upcoming films that I may do on the pod, I'm, I'm going to watch Madigan, which is a Don Siegel film, which you can't really get in the States. But if you're listening elsewhere, you'll probably be able to stream this. Um, that's a film that stars Richard Widmark and Henry Fonda and is kind of a, a long lost neo-noir from the great Don Siegel. Um, I may do the right stuff. I want to do the electric horseman with frequent guest Lee Wilkoff. And I may do broadcast news with my friend, Rick Brown, which I'm really looking forward to good James L. Brooks film. And I guess that's it. So listen, keep in touch. I will be back shortly. I won't let so many weeks go by, uh, hit me up on Instagram, shoot me an email. Tell me what you're watching. Tell me what you want me to do on the pod. And hey, you never know. Maybe I'll listen. So thanks again for participating in the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Talk to you next time.